0: Up here trying to have a whole dance party during that bumper, y'all. That music got in my soul, and I wanted to be dancing all, and it's a long one too, so you can have a full-on dance party everyone. My name's Oshita. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at Woodland, and I am really excited to be back with you all. I'm especially excited because it's Palm Sunday, and I'm sure if you've heard me speak here in any capacity, you know that I have just a deep love for church tradition and the church calendar. And so, like, this is on. Like This is the week. Like, every single day this week, there are things going on to to remind me of my Christ, to move into Christ-likeness, to help me focus on Jesus, the Lamb of God, um, to be uh, a member, as Jenny shared with us during our worship, of that upside-down kingdom. And so today, we're going to continue our community conversation on being treasure hunters. We are going to continue, actually, uh, uh, this long uh, exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, and what does it look like for us to take those teachings from Jesus serious, and what does it look like for us to actually embody them in our real lives so that when we move through this world, when we interact with other people, we are reflecting the kingdom values and principles that that ushers in that upside down way of being, that transformative way of being that invites people in. And so I want to say from the outset that this sermon series has been really meaningful for me because it's been touching on some of the things that I have, that I've struggled with, particularly like these past couple of years. I've, I've experienced a ton of anxiety and a lot of questions about, am I safe? Do I have what I need to survive, to take care of my family? Do our, how are the, the changes happening in policy and people who who are in charge of making the rules? How do those things affect my live experience? And I have to tell you that one of the things that I really needed to pay attention to is what Dan started us with at the beginning of this conversation around being treasure hunters is looking at what, paying attention to what you're looking at, and asking yourself, is this a treasure? Is this something worth my time, my energy? Is this something that forms me into Christ's likeness? Then if not, we rethink our, our relationship to it and the amount of energy that we invest in it. And I love how Greg has been walking us through about getting out of the Mammon game and being very aware of how we engage with our resources, our times, our talents, our treasures. But I'm a real practical kind of gal. And so what I'm going to be bringing today is taking so much of the good stuff that we've learned in this conversation that we've shared with each other and offering you a practical way of living that out. A real way for you to continue being a treasure hunter as we move into a different part of the conversation on the Sermon on the Mount. So my message today is entitled, The Liturgy of Abundance, and it's from an article written by one of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann. Um, The article came out in 1999 in Christian Century magazine, and the full title is, The Liturgy of Abundance, the Myth of Scarcity. So we're going to be talking about scarcity mindset. And what does it mean for us to bump up against scarcity, that feeling of there's not enough? What's it pointing to? And then how can we respond as kingdom people with a liturgy of abundance? We're going to talk about that in two different ways. We're going to talk about perceived, like what is it that you're looking at? Is that really true? and actual, like there's actual scarcity. So what do we do with that? So you're gonna get kind of like two sermons in one today because I cannot talk about, I cannot speak on Palm Sunday about our King Jesus without acknowledging uh, what happened in um, on Palm Sunday. So we're gonna do a little bit of a Palm Sunday message and then we're going to move into our conversation on scarcity and abundance. But first I need to tell you one of my coping mechanisms from the past couple of years. So what I would do, and I think I shared with you uh, once that I was doing a ton of baking, like lots of sourdough. So what I would do is I would really think about the food that my family was eating. And I would try to plan at least one really nice meal a week. Now, if I was on top of my meal planning game, I would kind of follow like a little rhythm that I I had. So like, of course, Taco Tuesday, and then like Tuscan Thursday, which was basically some sort of pasta. And then on Sunday, we would always have a comfort food. And I thought, oh, I'm so creative. Look at me kind of really paying attention to comfort food because we're all so stressed out. But actually, in an article called 2020, the year of the comfort food comeback, It showed that, like, out of polling 2,000 Americans, two out of three of them were reverting back to their childhood favorites. So there was like an uptick in pizza, 55% of people were eating pizza, Uh, hamburgers. 48% 48% ice cream, even when it's cold, 46%. Yes, boo boo. Yes, if you want to out yourself as a comfort food lover, go ahead and yell as I list these foods. <laughs> French fries, 45% mac and cheese. Just make sure you know that it's baked properly with the right toppings. Don't throw some weird cheese in there like Pepper Jack, what are you doing? <laughs> and then the one that I particularly love spaghetti and meatballs spaghetti and meatballs is something that i that I love to make because it's it's so simple. The recipe is so easy. I mean, even my nineteen year old can make it. But because of my kind of my contemplative bent, the way that I'm formed, that I like to connect everything I do to paying attention to to the spirit and what, what Christ is doing in me as I'm doing it. I had these these little practices when I would make spaghetti and meatballs. I would like get the, the meat and I would like make sure I have different kinds of, of of like a different combination of like ground meat. And then I would like mix it together and be like, this is the community of God coming together. It was a holy moment. Don't laugh, y'all go ahead. And then I would, like, use food-safe gloves and make little meatballs, and each meatball would be a person or a prayer request. And then, and then I, I used canned spaghetti sauce. Don't judge me. I mean, we got to cut corners where we can. But I, I had this particular spaghetti sauce that I would only use. as Raoul's spaghetti sauce, okay? I would only use it. Don't, don't catch me trying to feed you ragu with my comfort food, Okay. So it's my favorite. That's the one that I would always go to. That's the one that tastes like it tastes like joy and intentionality. It tastes like a perfect spring Tuscan day where you come into a little villa and an old loving mother is there saying, "Come, sit and it tastes like all of that simmered in like tangy tomato and garlic and basil. It brings my soul alive. But one, thank you, hallelujah. But one, but one day, a few weeks ago, maybe more like a month ago, I went to Target and I saw a sign that looked like this. I saw shelves, of spaghetti, uh, shelves of spaghetti sauce, emptied, and said, um, "We're sorry, we're experiencing a shortage supply." come back for more of your favorites in another time. And I was like, well, where, but, 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 but where? Where? Where is my, my Tuscan contemplative experience? But where? I mean, they had like the Target store brand. <laughs> no, just no. And I was standing there and, and I had what I would describe as a mini come apart. Cause I thought, well, what am I gonna, well, okay, so, so if, if I make spaghetti and, and me, me, okay, so if, do, do, are, are the prayers still, like, can I still do the prayer? Like, it just totally threw me off because I, I had for almost two years consistently used the same spaghetti sauce. So I'm standing there and I'm looking at these empty shelves, these really actual empty shelves, but then I'm looking, like, above and there's, like, the super expensive ones with, like, Italian names that I'm not even going to try. No. And then the store brand, which... Again, no. And I'm standing there and I'm like, God, how am I going to make spaghetti sauce? How am I going to make spaghetti and meatballs? Like, I, I didn't know what to do. And I know it seems silly, but in that moment, I was experiencing this like, mini anxiety attack because something that I was so used to that, that made me feel comfortable, that helped me feel a little bit more human was taken away from me. And as I was looking at those shelves, I realized that I was actually experiencing scarcity mindset. Where I, I was looking at all of these shelves, and that's all that I saw were the empty shelves. But I didn't see the possibility of, okay, maybe I take the store brand and I zhuzh it up a bit. I didn't see that. I didn't see the potential of abundance. I was caught in a scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset activates a variety of anxieties in us, anxiety about our safety, anxiety about our future, anxiety about our capacity, and probably most of all, our anxiety about the character of God. I can't tell you how many times I have encountered somebody who says, I don't believe in God or I'm not sure that there is a God because of all of the the brokenness I see in the world, all the suffering I see in the world because of greed, because of lack of resources, because of lack of sharing, people who are experiencing homelessness or, or chronic poverty or the ongoing needs of the world. And what I wanna say is yes, there is perceived scarcity looking at the shelves and and then not seeing the potential for abundance, but there is real scarcity. And what can we do as kingdom people to counteract the anxieties that come up and the doubt that comes up? We cultivate an abundance mindset. Simply put, an abundance mindset is adjusting our perception of our time, talents, and treasures as not a finite resource, but a gift from a generous God that has the capacity to increase. We cultivate this mindset through what Brueggemann calls the liturgy of abundance. We're gonna look more into these four steps of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. But it is Palm Sunday. So what does that mean for us as people who want to have an abundance mindset in a world that perpetuates the myth of scarcity? Well, We're going to look at Mark 11. I'm not going to read the whole story to you, but I'm going to highlight a few aspects of Jesus' procession into Jerusalem. So Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, it you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. And Jesus tells them to untie it and bring it to him. And if anyone says, why are you doing this strange thing? They, they, you should say to them, well, the Lord has need of it and will be sent back immediately. And then they went away and they found the colt, just as Jesus told them outside, um, a door outside on the street and they untied it. And yep, somebody said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you untying the colt? And they said to him, just as what Jesus said, And they let, and the person let them go. And then Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem. And and as he is is on this procession into Jerusalem, the crowds are gathering and they're taking their jackets and their cloaks off and they're laying them down and they're taking palm branches and they're waving it and laying those down too. And they are proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David, Hosanna in the highest. So Hosanna, simply put, means save us. Save us from all of the brokenness that we are experiencing. Save us from all the oppression, all the doubts, all the anxieties. Save us. And as they are proclaiming, save us to Jesus, There is a a, a particular picture that they would have had in their mind because that kind of procession, that walking into a city riding on a beast of burden is something they've seen, but they've only seen it from warrior kings, from kings who are coming in to wage war to get what they want, to extend their values and their principles. They had their guards and they would have their armory and they would come in and, and they would say, and, and the crowds would say, yes, save us, come in, do, do, do your thing, protect us in this power over violent way. But Jesus didn't ride in on this majestic stallion. Jesus rode in on a donkey to symbolize that his kingdom is the kingdom of peace, that his kingdom is subversive, that his kingdom is remarkable. His kingdom is upside down. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing that within a week he would be betrayed, tortured, ridiculed, and then crucified and die on a cross to overcome death and all its its signatures, was his invitation to that whole crowd to follow him into the way of peace and be shalom-minded as you go. It says that the way of the kingdom of God is not power over dominion and coercion and manipulation, but power under humility, vulnerability, and sacrifice. When we talk about being a part of the kingdom of God, we're reorienting our lives around this example of Jesus. And so on Palm Sunday, we traditionally examine our commitment to Jesus as the king so that we don't end up like that fickle crowd who are one day saying, save us, save us. But then when you let us down, we are going to say, crucify him but that we have that enduring commitment to the way of Jesus because we have clear eyes. We know what we are getting ourselves into. And having clear eyes and knowing what I'm getting myself into and knowing who I am following has helped me pay attention to my, my particular complicity or, or, or um, the way that I'm prone to have scarcity mindset so that I can activate and practice a liturgy of abundance. Because this is one thing that I know for sure, that every time I'm plagued by scarcity of thinking that there's not enough, for I'm not enough, I'm never okay. I feel dominated. I feel coerced. I feel manipulated. I feel powerful in visceral ways. And then I extend that unknowingly sometimes into the way I interact with people. Now, maybe you're in this room and you're thinking, I don't think I'm weird like you, Oshida. I don't freak out over spaghetti sauce as a, as a reflection of, of scarcity thinking. I don't think I deal with that. Well, let me just share with you one description from Renee Brown, an emotions researcher, on what scarcity thinking may look like. She says, we spend an inordinate amount of time calculating how much we have, want, and don't have, and how much everyone else has needs and wants. We're often comparing our lives, our marriages, our families, our communities to unattainable, media-driven versions of perfection. And we're holding up our reality against our own fictional account of how great someone else has it. Has anyone in this room struggled with comparison? Underneath that, the thing below the thing, it's not that you want necessarily what they have, but you're upset because you don't have what they have. And that is a scarcity mindset. Now I wanna say, as with every um, invitation into Christ-likeness, we're gonna feel a pinch and a pull. It's gonna tap into something that you are like, oh God, do I do that? And I wanna say that it is totally natural that having gone through what we've gone through collectively because of the pandemic, to, to lean into scarcity thinking, to have a scarcity mindset, because really at its core, it's a fear response. It shines a spotlight on areas that we, we believe we simply don't have enough. And, may, and, and the lack of that thing tells us a narrative that we are not safe, we are not provided for, we are not cared for, God does not see us because of the actual or perceived lack. But, my friends, Perfect love casts out all fear. An abundance mindset is a mindset that is grounded in the love of God. We see scarcity in the Bible and God's response to scarcity um, in two particular places that I want to hold up. One that affirms or recognizes perceived um, scarcity and then one that recognizes actual scarcity. So perceived scarcity takes us all the way back to the garden. God's dream of the world as it should be is my definition for shalom. And the garden was a space where shalom was overflowing. There was access to food. There was access to fun. There was access to relationship with each other and with God. Overflowing, never-ending. And yet, everything changed when there was a perceived lack. When the enemy came and said, did God really? And entered in that doubt that God is a good God and that God is a generous God. I have a lot of sympathy or empathy for for Eve actually having my target experience because there was tons of Target grocery, Target spaghetti sauce, and there was tons of the expensive spaghetti sauce, but the thing that I wanted, I couldn't have access to. And immediately I thought, all is lost. Or I started to rethink, how do I be? That perceived scarcity mindset is real. We feel it in our bodies, It it, it enters us into a spiral but God's, but God's abundance was always there, and kingdom people our calling is to look for the abundance, because the in the abundance is the narrative that God is for us. That God has never left us, and God continues to desire to provide for us. So if you are in this room and you realize, "Oh yeah, I do that thing, Oshida." Like, yeah. I, I, I look at something and I'm like, oh, it's not enough. It's not good. I don't, maybe I'm a perfectionist in you. And so you, you demean it or you discount it. Just be aware. Let the spirit, ask the spirit to remind you when you are leaning into perceived scarcity. But I know some of you in this room are saying, what, if Shida, what about that thing you said about people who don't believe in God because of real scarcity, because of real lack in the world? Yep. God responds to that too in scripture. We see in Genesis 47 that Pharaoh has had a dream about a famine and he woke up and his scarcity mindset was activated. All of his anxieties started started up about his legacy, about the, his kingdom, about the people, about his safety, all of it happened. He was living in this state of fear, and he passed that fear on to the people in the way that he responded to the famine that was coming. He was afraid that there wasn't enough to go around, so he had to control it all. He was fearful, and out of that fear, he was ruthless. He created a system where he put one person, Joseph, in charge of all of the resources and Joseph would, instead of looking at the resources and figuring out a way to make sure that everyone who came received what they needed, he set, there was a system that was set up that was like a collateral system. Like, what do you have to offer in exchange for this bounty or enough to get you through? And so people would come and they would bring, um, they would give up parts of their land that God provided for them. Or maybe other kinds of food that was not going to serve them as much as what the what was in the pantry, or and then when that wasn't enough, the next year when the famine was still going, they would come back and ask for more food, and then Joseph would say, "Okay, great, give me some of your cattle, animals that they that they." That they that they birthed and that they cared for and that they tended to and that was a source of provision and work and maybe even companionship to them. So Jesus, so Joseph would say, "Give this to me," and then they would give it to him. And then by the third year of the famine, well, they didn't have any collateral themselves, any collateral, so they would give themselves their own bodies in exchange for maybe caring for the the rest of their family, they would give of themselves. And, And Brueggemann says, that is how the children of Israel became slaves. By responding to actual scarcity as an economic transaction. What can you give me in exchange for the thing you want to keep you alive? Now my friends, enter in with me in a thought experiment. What if Pharaoh has the dream, and he wakes up, and he recognizes that this is bigger than him, so he needs to have he needs to have more people around him speaking into the ideas, so being multi voice. And then, what if he said, um, you know, I am going to I'm going to avail myself to God, and know that I can't control the weather, I can't control this famine. So trust that God cares about me, God cares about these people, so we've got to figure out a way for all of us to be cared for. What if, in that way of responding, everyone was fed and cared for, and then because they're fed and cared for, they are now thinking more creatively and working harder. And, 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 and in that community work, maybe the famine doesn't last as long. And that's a holy thought experiment. We don't know if that's the case. But that's part of our practice as kingdom people, to enter into that creative thought experiment that says, what if I factor God into this? I have an actual lack, an actual need. And instead of me responding out of fear and anxiety to fix it, coercion and manipulation and, uh, to fix it, I turn to God and I say, God, I... I can't do it. I'm vulnerable, and I need your help. I know that you care about this need, so show me what to do. See, we have to be careful that when we are faced with an actual lack, actual scarcity, that we don't pass on that anxiety that we don't into to others as we are dealing with that lack from an anxious, fearful place. Brueggemann goes on to say about Pharaoh that he had all the land except that that was belonging to the priests, which he would have never touched because he needed somebody to bless them. And in that, that hoarding and holding on to something that you perceive you need, the notion of scarcity was introduced into biblical faith. And the book of Exodus records the contest between the liturgy of generosity and the myth of scarcity a contest that still tears us apart today. So we need to have a way of seeing what God sees. We need a way to counter the scarcity of a perceived lack, or count, yeah, counter the scarcities that comes with perceived lack, and counter the scarcity from actual lack. Now the first thing that I would say, the very first thing before we, we begin living into what Brueggemann calls the liturgy of abundance is to go back to what we have talked about Matthew 6, 25 through 34, and I'm not gonna read it because we have spent some time sit- sitting in it. This whole passage invites us to do something incredibly important. Stop all of our fretting, take a moment, take a deep breath, and look around. Look around at the world that God has placed us in and all of the ways that the world resounds that God is a generous and good God. From the birds to the grass, look and see how God provides for them. My favorite song is His Eye is on the Sparrow. And when I recognize scarcity mindset creeping in and that anxiety and my desire to control that anxiety with power over response, I sing that song to myself, his eye is on the sparrow, so I know he watches me. That first step in cultivating an abundance mentality, practicing an abundance liturgy is to stop and notice Now, I said the word liturgy, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 times. And I'm sure that when you hear it, maybe you've heard me say it and you immediately think, wait, is she talking about that thing that Catholics do? Like those prayers that they pray or those responsive readings? Like, is she talking about like a very boring kind of faith? Because I'm not about that life. And I think that oftentimes the way that we see liturgy show up in church communities is through readings and prayers. Maybe the songs that we sing or the actions that we take in a worship gathering can be called a liturgy. Maybe you've heard liturgy called the work of the people, which kind of just says like all the people bring their whole gifts to a worship gathering. And in that space, there is liturgy or that is a liturgy. But actually, liturgy is liturgia. It's a Greek word that, com- that means laos, the people, and ergas, a work. It, it is actually more commonly pointed to what happens in a community when there's a benefactor who says, I want this community to do something good for the world. I want them to build something or have an initiative, and so I'm going to provide for this community. And then they take those funds and they do something to the glory of God. It's a public service service usually from a private benefactor. So then it's not just about the people and their gifts and what they have to bring. It's about the community coming together and coming up with this one beautiful way of moving through the world that invites people in to see God as good and generous and for them. Theologian Maggie Dawn says, liturgy might legitimately be said to be work for God that transforms our world and benefits people. Liturgy isn't mine or yours. We can't hoard it or hold on to it. It's not about us. When we talk about the liturgy of abundance, it is this practice of us coming together, embodying, using our bodies and our, our gifts and our times collectively to tell a story of God's generosity. Because we believe that God is always for us, that we believe that God desires to whisper. In this moment, the same thing God whispered in the garden, it is good. Liturgy is the community of God saying, yes, it is good. Even when things, we perceive things as not good, or even when things actually are not good, we are creative enough to enter into an abundance, a liturgy of abundance, a way of moving that reminds ourselves of God's abundance so that we can proclaim may not be good out there, but it is real good here. It is good. So we're gonna be in Matthew 14. I'm gonna tell the story, I'm gonna paraphrase the story a little bit. If you wanna go look at it um, in depth, you wanna read it this week, maybe as a part of your devotion. Um, It's Matthew 14, 13 through 21. So Jesus heard um, what had happened, and so he withdrew to a solitary place. And then even hearing hearing of this, the crowds followed Jesus. So even Jesus pulled away, got alone with God, but then the crowds still were looking for him. And so when Jesus came back from his time of stopping and reminding himself of his father and his father's will and his father's character, being shored up in that, he entered back into the space of a large crowd. He had compassion on them and he healed them. And then as evening was approaching, the disciples came to him and, and they said, listen, Jesus, this is, we're, we're way far out. Like you took your solitary in a, in a way, way out, like remote place. Good on you, Jesus. Not so great on us. There's thousands of us. So here's the deal. They are hungry. They are in need and we don't have anything to offer them. So send them back. Yes, yes, they're experiencing your love. Yes, yes, your upside-down kingdom's on the move. Yes, yes, you're healing them. But we got to stop that because people are hangry and they're not very nice when they're hungry. So let's send them away. And then like they can come back and we can just pick it right up back up. And then Jesus, in response to their, the disciples' initial perceived scarcity mindset, says, well, wait, <laughs> they don't need to go anywhere. You give them something to eat. Jesus offered them A liturgy of abundance. And then it said, okay, right, 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 Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Our bad. So we do actually have some stuff. We just have five loaves and two fish. So then they they went on to communicate an actual scarcity. Thousands of people, five loaves, two fish. So Jesus, back to plan A. Send them back. Let's eat this because this is enough for us to be okay. And then when they come back, we'll pick it right back up. And Jesus says, okay, he takes what they have and he says, bring them to me. And he directed the people to sit on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up at heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children, so more than 5,000 people. So Jesus, in response to their actual scarcity, invited them into a way of, of, of abundance, a trust in God's provision that astounded them, that was remarkable, that was subversive. So there are five steps, or sorry, there's four steps in what Brigham calls the Liturgy of Abundance that I'm going to offer us as we close to live into that um, whenever our scarcity mindset is activated. And I'm going to teach it to you with a practice um, from Julian of Norwich, who was a Christian leader during the Black Plague that killed over 50% of, of the of European people. She was what was called an anchoress, which meant she was somebody who chose to live a, a life away from the crowds and lived in a remote place. So you could say that she was somebody who sheltered in place. She's actually a theologian who, who wrote things that are really pro- prescient to us in this moment because of her lived experience as a kingdom person in the middle of a pandemic. And so she offered this form of prayer after she had experienced some illness. Some, she was paralyzed and she was in suffering and she wanted that suffering to be redemptive. So she offered a prayer and it's, a, it's an embodied prayer. So, I'm going to teach you the hand motions, then I'm going to teach you the liturgy of abundance that we see in our passage in Matthew. So, the first hand motion that Julian Norwich uses in her prayer is this cupped hand motion. So, if you want to go ahead and do that, a cupped hand motion. And then the next motion is raising of your hands, this movement of surrender. Then the next motion is covering your heart, holding close, grounding yourself. And then the last movement is this opened, armed, maybe you're carrying something or it's further down, whatever feels good for your body. So cupped hands, surrender, grounded, and release. So there are four words that I want us to hold on to. I'm gonna say them for us, and then I'm gonna invite us to do the hand motions in a prayer of the Liturgy of Abundance. So the first that we see in our passage is that Jesus took what was offered, what was there. However small and insignificant it was, he took it and he held it in his hands. And then Jesus offered it to God. He blessed it. He offered gratitude to God and invited the Father to give him wisdom and how to extend it in a way that was remarkable so that all were satisfied. And then he broke it. He broke it and he made it smaller. He made it smaller so that there was some for him but then some for all. And then he gave it. He gave it to the disciples and hope and faith and joy spread in that community because of that act of generosity. So if you wanna um, join in with me in this liturgy of abundance, this embodied work of our people, join me in a little prayer and then I'll close us. So Lord, And if you want to stand up or sit down, whatever feels good for your body, go ahead. So Lord, we come before you as people plagued by scarcity mindset. Lord, help us take that which you have given to us and hold it in our hands and honor it for the gift that it is. Lord, help us bless the gifts that we have, however small they may be, however many ways we want to discount it or demean it, let us bless it and give it back to you. Give us wisdom and discernment on how to use it and supernaturally bless it to care for many. Lord, let us break. Let us break it into smaller pieces, resisting that fear of hoarding and, and scarcity, resisting it and, and letting go of it. Let us be grounded in our belovedness to know you will care for us and then let us give freely, generously, hopefully. Amen. This Thursday is Monday Thursday, and it's a day where we traditionally come together and have a meal. Um, it's derived from the Latin word command, where we, we spend some time reflecting on Jesus's commandment to love one another as I have loved you. Um, in some Monday Thursday dinners, there's feet washing. There's definitely taking the communion and reading when Jesus was with his disciples that one last time. And so maybe this Thursday, as you're preparing to come to Good Friday service and enter into Holy Saturday, which is traditionally a day of silence and reflection, and then on into Easter Sunday, maybe this Thursday, practice the Liturgy of Abundance, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. Maybe kind of do this on Holy Thursday so that it becomes a part of your bodied, embodied response to when scarcity pops back up. And then we're going to say together as we close the Lord's Prayer um, that Greg has been leading us in. So if you will say it with me, this will be our closing response to what God has brought to our conversation today. So it's on the screen behind us. Let me take a sip of water. (laughs) All right, join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And bring us not into the time of, e- of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen and amen. A few things I want to um, remind you about and invite you into um, if you would like to hear a little bit more of scarcity mentality and the Liturgy of Abundance, I will be with Shauna and Dan on the MuseCast this Tuesday at 4 o'clock. If you want to kind of continue this conversation with others, we follow a relational guide, and so we are sharpened in relationship with each other. Consider joining a gathering group where you can continue having these conversations and being sharpened by other Kingdom people, and more information for that is on the website. Prayer team, I would thank you for your love and service of this community, and I invite you up. There are prayer warriors ready and here to hold space for you to process any of the emotions that may have come up as you've heard my message today or that the Spirit has just been touching on or anything going on in your life. If you have actual scarcity and you love prayer for it, they are here for you in the building and then also online there is prayer, um, and the link to that is on the screen. And then finally, next week, we celebrate Jesus, our risen King. And we want to make sure that all of our little kingdom people have space for that celebration to be with each other and say, it is good in their sweet little voices. So we just ask that you make sure to register your littles so that there's space for them here next week on Easter Sunday. Well, my friends, it's been a joy to be with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.